When I was a kid, I'll never forget how much my grandfather loved salt. As a child of the Depression, he just valued food a whole lot more than we do today. And when I was a kid growing up, I will always remember whenever we would go to their house for dinner, on their dinner table, there were two salt shakers. There was the salt shaker for everybody else. And then there was one specifically for my grandfather. And he loved salt so much that he would sometimes salt each bite of food as he ate it. And the reason for this is salt is a flavor enhancer. It has this ability to take what it attaches itself to and to amplify it to an even greater level. So when you put salt on food, man, it just makes things taste better. And some foods are just absolutely inedible if you don't have salt with them. Salt always makes things better. But in Jesus' day, salt was not a flavor enhancer. It served a different purpose. And today, that's what we're going to look at in the Gospel of Matthew, in Matthew chapter 5. We're going to look at what Jesus had to say about salt. And so if you've got your scriptures, I want to encourage you to turn with me there. But as you get ready to do that, I want to make sure, as always, that we set the stage, that we're reading the Bible in context. We always want to be careful to read the Bible in context and so that we twist our beliefs to fit the scripture. We don't want to twist the scripture to fit our beliefs. So in this portion of the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew, of course, the writer of this is you know, a, the a disciple of Jesus who was a tax collector who had such a low standing. They were the lowest of the low in Jewish society because they were sellouts. They would, um, they would charge their local people, their fellow Jews, taxes to pay to the Roman government. But to make a living, they would actually charge extra. And so as a result, tax collectors were incredibly wealthy, but they were considered the scum of the earth by other Jews. And so Matthew, amazingly, is called by Jesus, a rabbi, to be one of his followers. And he wrote down his gospel, his version of the life of Jesus, his telling of it, to show the Jewish people that Jesus was the Messiah. So you really can't understand the gospel of Matthew without putting yourself in the sandals of a first century Jew. And so as we get to this section in the Gospel of Matthew in chapters 5, 6, and 7, Jesus is giving what we call the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus goes and he has all of these thousands of people following him. And he sits down on top of this hill called the Mount of Beatitudes. If you were to go to Israel and and visit it or even just give it an internet search, you can find beautiful pictures of what the Mount of Beatitudes looks like. And it, you know, it's it's by the seaside. It's just it's a beautiful, you know, vista to overlook the countryside. And you can just imagine Jesus sitting down with these thousands of people listening to his teachings as he gives them what he as a rabbi would teach. And this is what was known as a rabbi's yoke, that every rabbi had their teaching, their interpretation of the scriptures that people would come to hear them teach on. And this is Jesus' teachings. This is his yoke. This is why you know the familiar passage where Jesus told the people, to. he said, come to me if you are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest for my burden is easy and my yoke is light. He's talking 
talking about his teachings, his his understanding and interpretation of the scriptures. And we know that Jesus taught different. He was radical. Jesus didn't just teach on someone else's authority like Moses. He taught on his own authority and doing so claimed to be God. And so in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, this is where we're picking up on this Sermon on the Mount, or as my professor called it, the Manifesto of the Kingdom. Jesus is teaching his followers how they are to live and act in their current environment. And the Jews lived in a very dark environment under the Roman Empire. This was a pagan nation with a very different set of culture and values. And the Jews would have felt overshadowed by the Romans, and they felt that they, you know, did not have the place in the world they used to have under kings like David and Solomon when Israel was a world power. They were at the beck and call of the Romans. And so as a result, they really felt overshadowed and uh, uncared for by God. And on top of this, they were separated by God, by the, the law of Moses and the sacrificial system. You see, the law of Moses had 613 laws in it, and every time you broke a law, according to the law of Moses and the system that God set, you were supposed to go to the temple and you were supposed to offer a sacrifice for your sins. And the average person couldn't afford to do this because animals were very expensive. The animals that you had to have to offer for the, your sins and for forgiveness on the, you know, on the altar by the priest. And so the average person couldn't do this. And so they would do it during the holy days and the festivals. But even that for the average person was expensive. So for example, take Jesus's family living in Nazareth and Galilee. This is a multi-week journey. So for Jesus and his family, you know, Jesus's uh, you know, stepfather, and it was a carpenter, and so was Jesus. They owned a carpentry business. So for them to travel to Jerusalem meant leaving their business and stop making money, stop doing work, to leave your home and leave it unsecured. You know, your whole family would leave and go to offer sacrifices. So your home was unsecured. Your animals were not being fed and watered. Your gardens were not being tended to. And who knows what could happen while you were gone. And this journey would be very expensive. You'd have to, to carry the animal with you or spend the money to, you know, to travel and buy the animal at the temple and then offer it as a sacrifice. And to do this multiple times during the year would have been very expensive. Every time you broke a law, you would be separated by God by your sins. And the sacrificial system was just so hard for average people to handle. So you're living in this dark pagan world full of sin and disobedience to God. And then the, the average Jewish person would have felt so separated by God, not only by culture, but also by the legal system and the law of, the, of the, the law of Moses that was in place at the time. And on top of that, the Jewish religious leaders added extra rules, these oral traditions. So for example, the law of Moses says you can't work on the Sabbath. From sundown on Friday till sunset on Saturday, you couldn't work. That's the Jewish Sabbath. And so to add to this, the religious leaders would actually set the amount of steps a person could take during the day of the Sabbath. And all these other rules, these thousands of other rules on top of the 613 laws and the law of Moses. And so God would just feel so far away and impossible to follow, impossible to please. 
And then Jesus comes on the scene. And the reason why people were so attracted to Jesus was not only that he taught with authority, but Jesus taught in a way that people could understand. He taught in parables and stories to help your average uneducated person. You didn't have to be a a, a Bible scholar or a theologian to understand the teachings of Jesus. This is why even if people who are not followers of Jesus look to Jesus as the master teacher, because anybody could understand what he was teaching because he taught on a common level. And so as Jesus sits down and starts teaching the people, he comes and he brings them an everyday example. In Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, and you've probably heard this passage before, but before we read it, I want to encourage you, as Pastor Mark Brady says, and it just stuck with me, that sometimes we don't need to see something different. We need to see something differently. See, a lot of times we can get caught up in chasing a different message, a different word, something we haven't heard before, something we haven't listened to or, or applied to our lives before. Sometimes we don't need to hear something different. We need to look at something we already know and see it in a different way. You see, understanding God and worshiping God and following God is like a beautiful diamond or a, a, a gem that has a beautiful cut to it. So when it, you turn it in different ways, you see different facets of it, different ways that the light shines on it, and you can see it in a different perspective. The same thing's true of God. So my hope is as we look at this passage, let's try not to see something different because you've probably heard this passage before. I want to encourage you to hear something and see something differently. So Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13, Jesus says to the people, You are the salt of the earth, but what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Can you make it salty again? It will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. Now here's the thing, like we talked about, in our day and age, salt is a flavor enhancer. Just as we think about foods like french fries or grits or or chicken or steak, without salt, man, these things would be bland and tasteless. But man, salt really amplifies their flavor. But that's a 2022 way of thinking. In the first century, as Jesus' followers would have understood it, salt was not a flavor enhancer. Salt was a food preserver. You see, they didn't have electricity. They didn't have ice boxes and refrigerators. Maybe those that lived up in colder climates, right, in the mountains, might have had salt, excuse me, would have had snow year-round. But instead, they would use salt. These everyday people, I mean, the Middle East is hot. <laughs> and so the, they would use salt to preserve their foods. And salt was so important. Salt today is, is very cheap. You know, you can walk into any restaurant and salt shakers are sitting on the table. You can go to any fast food restaurant and get handfuls of salt packets for free. But in their day and age, man, salt was so valuable that people would actually get paid in salt. That's where we get the phrase, somebody being worth their salt, because people like Roman soldiers were paid in salt. They weren't paid in money, because if you're fighting a military campaign, you can't eat gold. You need salt to preserve your food for the long journeys. You see, so they would people would get paid in salt, something called a salarium. This is actually where we get the modern word salary from, because it's to be paid in salt for somebody to be worth their salt, worth what you're paying them for. 
And so the average person in Jesus' day would have not thought of salt as something that makes your food taste better. It wasn't a flavor enhancer. It was a food preserver. It was their refrigerators. And so salt was precious. And so when Jesus talked about salt, man, it was something they would all be connected to as a part of their everyday life. But you see, wealthy people were the only people that could afford rock salt, crystallized salt. Your average person didn't have bags of rock salt in their house unless they were wealthy. Your average person instead in the Middle East would go to these salt marshes where all these grasses would grow in the salt water and the grasses would soak up all of this salt inside of their leaves and their stem and their roots. And what the average person in Israel would do is they'd go to these salt marshes and they'd collect armfuls of these grasses and they would take them home. And the, the, the salt water that had soaked up into them, they would rub these, these grasses over the meat of the animals they had butchered. And it would, or, or they might even soak it in water with these reeds in it to make a brine, or they would coat it in the, in the salt water and the water would dry and it would preserve it like a salted pork or like we have today, even though they wouldn't have eaten pork then. It would preserve it, right? And so this idea of, of Jesus telling people, you're the salt of the earth. A lot of pastors I've heard incorrectly you know, take that out of context, even with the best of intentions. And they say things like, see, you're the salt of the earth. You're meant to go into the earth and, and give it flavor, right? And, and give it character. And while that's true, that's not what Jesus is saying. Jesus is telling his followers that they need to go into the earth, into the world, into their culture, and preserve it. The salt of the earth, that he's telling them that they are earth preservers, that that's their job. Their job is to leave their communities and go into the darkness of the culture they lived in and bring the teachings of Jesus, the, the, the economy of the kingdom, the lifestyle of Jesus's followers into this dark and struggling culture, that they are literally earth preservers. How cool is that? And that's what you and I, as followers of Jesus, are called to do today. We are called to go into the world we live and bring a lifestyle that's radically different. And when people ask us about it, we get to tell them the good news of Jesus, that he saves, that he forgives, that he wants to give us abundant and and full lives, full of wonder and joy. But then Jesus goes on and he, he makes this statement. He says, what, what good is salt if it has lost its flavor? Other translations say when the salt has lost its saltiness. And growing up as a kid, I always struggled with this because I've never found salt that stops being salty. Right? Even if you were to go up, I don't know if you've ever seen any of these Himalayan salt rock lamps, and the Himalayan salt is supposed to be thousands and thousands of years old. If you were to go up and, you know, don't tell somebody, but if you were to go up and hope maybe if it's your own lamp, and you were to lick your finger and touch it and then taste the salt on your finger, it's still salty. Salt doesn't stop being salty. Why? Because it stays salt. So, what is Jesus talking about? What good is salt if it's lost its flavor? What would happen is these grasses, over time, the salt would run out and it would just be grass. It would no longer have any salt water in it to rub on the meat to preserve it. And Jesus says, can you make it salty again? Can you put salt back in these grasses? No. He says, then it will be thrown out and trampled underfoot as worthless. 
You see, Jewish people and, and people in Israel would take these grasses when they were no longer salty, and they would put them on their roofs because they have flat roofs that they use as, as patios and places to sit in the cool of the evening at night to make extra living space. Or they would put them in their um, they would put them in their on their pathways to walk on these grasses, and that's what Jesus is talking about. That when the when the, these grasses have lost their saltiness, they're good for nothing but to be thrown out and walked on. And what Jesus is saying here is in the same way, you and I, if we're not doing what we're supposed to do, then ultimately our life is not making an impact. We're not preserving the earth if we hide in our communities. And that's what we have done, sadly. So many church communities have withdrawn from their culture and created a holy huddle, a social club, where you show up on Sunday and Wednesday, maybe Sunday night and the occasional fifth Sunday night sing, or maybe a, a revival, a guest speaker every once in a while. And you have your holy huddle, and you have your three songs, and then a, a nice sermon, and then you go home and you live life just like everybody else. Sadly, most Christians, if they were put on trial for being a Christian, would not be found guilty because their lives are no different than the rest of the world, of the culture we live in. And just like the Jews living under the Roman Empire, you and I, we live in a dark culture full of sin, full of disobedience. And I won't go too far down the rabbit trail of this. I encourage you to look it up. And in the 1890s, we had the Death of God movement in Europe that made its way to America. And people began to believe that we no longer needed God, that science and technology can answer all the questions of life. As a result, in the 1920s, we took God out of our schools. In the 1940s and 50s, we took God out of our government. And in the 60s and 70s, we took God out of our homes. And as a result, the 1900s were the bloodiest century in recorded history because for over a hundred years, we have told people in school that you're an accident of Darwinian evolution, that your life has no meaning and no ultimate purpose. You don't matter. You're an accident. And then when the government doesn't affirm it and people aren't talking about it in their homes because we took God out of all these places. And so people kill each other like never before and take their own lives like never before. Why? Because we as the church have not stepped up to be salt, to be earth preservers. And Jesus is telling us that if we lose our saltiness, if we lose our effectiveness, then basically our church services are worthless because we're not going into the world anymore. We've separated from it. But Jesus doesn't stop there. He goes on. And he uses another example. And this is very common in rabbinic teaching to use two examples back to back. Because under the law of Moses, you need two witnesses in a court of law. So rabbis would teach and would give two examples back to back to be two witnesses to what they were teaching. And so Jesus first says, hey, if you're my follower, you're the salt of the earth. You're called to be an earth preserver. But then he says this in verse 14, you He's on his followers. He says, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. I didn't really get this passage for a long time until I was stationed with the army in the Middle East. And when we went and traveled to Jordan, we were traveling throughout the country and we had to travel at night a lot. And I remember as we drove through these roads, you know, and, and traveled around at night, it was so dark for miles and miles and miles. There were no lights. 
pitch black darkness other than the headlights of our truck. And I remember thinking to myself, man, I hope we don't break down because I don't want to be stuck out here in the middle of nowhere. And then in the distance, up on a hill, you could see the lights of the city, like a beacon in the darkness. And I thought to myself, what would it have been like for a first century traveler to see that city glowing in the distance and know that there's safety there, to know that there's people there, to know that I can have rest there. It was so beautiful. Cities back then were built on hills for military strategy, for defensive purposes. If an enemy wanted to conquer that city, the enemy would have to, military force would have to fight uphill. And the, the city could defend itself because it had the advantage, the better position. And so cities were built on hills. And as a result, you could see it at night from miles away. And Jesus says to them, you are the light of the world, like a city on a hilltop that cannot be hidden. But as I thought about the cities as we drove through them after we got into town and I started looking around, I realized the reason the city was glowing was not because the city was one big light. That's what it looked like from far away. But up close, you realize that the city light is actually made up of tons, probably millions of individual small lights. And that's exactly how the church works, that every single one of us has a light. Our lives are meant to be a light that shines for the world to see. And when we all come together as the body of Christ, my light and your light and everybody else's light comes together. And we're like a city, a beacon in the night that cannot be hidden. But Jesus goes on in 15 to say this, that no one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket. Instead, a lamp is placed on a stand where it gives light to everyone in the house. That's what we're talking about. That the light of the church, the light of the followers of Jesus were meant to shine for everyone to see. But instead, we've put it under a basket. We've withdrawn into our holy huddles. We've covered our lives and we don't want to talk about our faith. Most of us don't want to talk about our faith because we don't know how. We haven't been taught. We don't teach this in churches. We don't teach people in our church community how to explain your faith, how to be a witness to other people, how to defend your faith against the critics through apologetics. We don't teach that. And as a result, we hide it. We live just like everyone else. And nobody would know that I'm a Christ follower based off the way I live my life if I was the average American. But Jesus says this in the same way in verse 16, let your good deeds shine out for all to see so that everyone will praise your heavenly father. In the same way that I was thankful to make it into the city to find safety and comfort and rest, our good deeds are supposed to shine like a city on a hill, a beacon in the night. We're called as followers of Jesus to go into the darkness and bring the light to be earth preservers. And here's the good news, as dark as the world is, and I could throw tons of statistics out and talk about how basically only one out of every 10 person, according to the Barna Research Group, is a practicing Christian. Many people say they're Christians, but only about 10% actually practice their faith. I could talk about how the Statista research in 2021 shows that of millennials, over 95% of millennials have never read their Bible. They've had it taught to them by others, but they've never read it on their own. That Talking about how the average person 
doesn't attend church on a regular basis. And even practicing Christians only do so 60% of the time. Why do these things matter? And there's so many other statistics we could look at. But the reality is the church has failed in the most recent generations. People are fleeing the church in droves. And Christians, people who claim the name of Jesus, are not living like Christians. And as a result, nobody sees the light of the world. Nobody sees the salt of the earth. The the culture of Christianity, the culture of the kingdom has not been preserved. And so people are fleeing. And as a result, for the first time in, in measured history in American culture, atheism is the fastest growing belief group. I realize atheism is not a belief, but people consider it that because it is a, a way of living. That is the fastest growing belief group in our country right now. Because Christianity is failing. The church is failing. But here's the good news. It's not too late. It's not too late for us to do what Jesus called us to. And here's our big truth for the day, is that salt and light always make a difference. Salt and light always make a difference. Even a little packet of salt sprinkled on food can have a huge impact. Even a tiny match in a dark room can let people see clearly like they couldn't before. And maybe you're sitting back and saying, I only have a little bit to give. That's okay. You and I are called to give what God has given us. But if you shine your light and I shine my light and the rest of the followers of Jesus in the church shine their lights, then we become a city, a beacon for everyone to see. And like Jesus said, it gives glory to God. So what do we do with this? I want to give you three pieces of homework that Jesus is telling us to do in these verses. First, be obedient. Stop being like a turtle in the shell. Stop hiding your lamp under a basket. Instead, let it shine. Learn how to be vocal. Learn how to share your faith. Learn how to defend the faith through apologetics. And be willing to go into the darkness to tell people the good news that Jesus offers life like no one else. Jesus offers a life that satisfies and a way of living that answers the trouble, the, the questions of life like nothing else can. Be obedient. Second, be a rebel. Live in a way that's different from the world because the way of Jesus is very different from our current culture. Start telling people the truth. Stand up for what is right. Be a rebel. Jesus was a rebel. He was radical. He lived in a way and taught in a way that was dramatically different from the world at the time. And he calls his followers to do the same thing. So be obedient to the teachings of Jesus, to be salt and light. Be a rebel to go against the flow of culture, to live a way that is different. And lastly, be present. Get involved. Don't hide in your in your holy huddles and just go to church on Sundays and Wednesdays and only read your Bible every once in a while. Get into your faith. Be active. Be present because the world needs you and me. If we don't step up according to groups like the Pew Research Poll and Statista and the Barna Research Group, we are one generation away, two at most, from the Christian faith dying in our culture. I'll close with this. I listened to a podcast by a gentleman this last week who was from London, and he said that God, through the Holy Spirit, called him to be a missionary to America, to the United States, and that he left his home in Europe, in London, to come be a missionary to the United States of America. 
How crazy is that? Guys, you and I have a lot of work to do. But the good news is, it's not too late for you and I to be salt and light. Jesus has called you and I to be earth preservers. And here's the great news. Salt and light always make a difference. No matter how small it is, no matter how little you may feel your light is, I promise you in the darkness, it is powerful. And God will use it in mighty ways. So let's be salt and light. Let's get out of our turtle shell. Let's get out of our holy huddles to go into the world as Jesus called his disciples. To go into the world, to share the gospel, to make disciples, to be salt and light. Because the world needs us more than ever before. And God has called us to do it. Salt and light always make a difference. Be blessed this week, my friends.